You're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. This week, we kicked off our brand new worship series. Pastor Tom Wood brought us the first message titled, What is Worship? Let's check it out. Well, good morning, Word of Life. So glad that you're able to be here. So glad that you made church a priority and getting here um, and being able to gather together as we start this series on worship. And as already been said, and hopefully we've communicated to everybody, um, we are shaking up service order a little bit, and it is going to be this way over the next few weeks, is that we'll have um, a a song of worship, and then we'll have time to um, sort of let everybody know things that are coming on and so on, and then we'll start the message earlier than normal. But we will have a full time of worship following the message. And the idea is that if we have this full time of worship after we've had a message or teaching on the idea of worship, the subject, the theme of worship, we'll be able to put into practice what we've just been hearing about. So hopefully it's effective. And I, for one, really believe, and I really hope and I'm anticipating that this is going to really set the baseline of a worship culture in our church. I really hope that we are a worshiping church, that we're a church that is hungry for the presence of God, the church that is determined to seek Him, a church that doesn't look at worship as just singing through a few songs. But as worship is a lifestyle, something that we're craving, something that we're desperate for, that encountering God is the highest priority in our life. One of the things that uh, we've done to help with this is we've put together uh, a worship playlist. And so um, you can go to the website. There's Spotify and Apple and Amazon and uh, I think YouTube as well. A few different ways that you can be have up this playlist. And so over the next few weeks, the songs that we'll be singing here at church will be taken from that playlist. But the hope is that this is a playlist that's a blessing to you through the week. That by having worship music, it starts to build this whole culture and this whole idea and this whole value of worship for yourself and your family at home. There's lots of things that could be said on the topic of worship, and over the next few weeks, we'll certainly get into a number of things and different aspects of worship and what the Bible teaches. I believe that this series will indeed establish that strong foundation for us as a church. And it's helpful to remember that the first churches 2,000 years ago, they started gathering together as believers in Jesus, as the first believers in Jesus. And the Jewish influence at the time was so strong that the churches would simply replicate what was happening in the synagogues when they gathered. In the first century synagogues, there was a time of singing and worship as they would recite a psalm together. There was a time of prayer. There would be teaching from the scriptures by a rabbi. And of course, there was time to build community and fellowship. It's no coincidence that this is almost exactly what the church services are still like all around the world across a whole spectrum of denomination and church traditions. Churches all over the world on Sundays are going to gather together, have a time of singing and worship. When we gather, we pray together. There's teaching from the Bible, and we value and celebrate fellowship and community. It's truly amazing to me that in 2,000 years, despite all the cultural changes that have happened, all the technological advancements that have happened, and yet the churches are still following the same format as the first century synagogues. There's a time of worship. There's an opportunity to pray. There's teaching from the scriptures, and there's time to fellowship. Worship continues to be a significant focus of the Christian faith, and the Bible has much to teach us on the topic. And worship cannot simply be singing a few songs on Sunday morning. Throughout the Bible, as we consider the role of worship, we see Paul and Silas in prison. They're worshiping together. It causes an earthquake, and two men walk free from prison. Moses, while he's leading the Israelites out of slavery, the whole point, if you read the book of Exodus, the interactions between Moses and Pharaoh was that the enslaved people would be able to be set free so they could go and worship the Lord. The walls of Jericho fell when God's people worshipped. The idea of an attitude of worship or a correct approach to God is a key part of understanding the Ten Commandments. 
The refusal of Daniel's friends to worship anyone or anything except God alone was so important that they were willing to be imprisoned and sentenced to death. Conversely, the failure to worship God brought devastation to the Old Testament people again and again. And all of this shows us that worship is deeply significant. There is no rational way to reduce biblical worship to a few songs we politely sing together once a week. That is wildly out of step with what we see in the Bible. Worship is a deep, life-changing expression of our devotion to God. Worship is something that is powerful and important. Music or singing is a common way to express worship, but the music or singing is not the full story. If you were here last week, you will have heard Josh Cheers speak on the passage from John 4 in greater depth. We're going to look at a few verses from that today. And for our purposes in John 4, we're going to consider the lady that Jesus is talking to. And she has a faulty understanding of what worship is and what matters about worship and what the value of worship is. And Jesus helps to change her way of thinking. To the Samaritan woman by the well, this is what Jesus said. John 4, starting verse 23. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit. So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. There's a call for true worshipers. We're told that the Father is looking and searching and seeking for true worshipers. True worshipers, the kind God is looking for, will worship him in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth, just to make the point, it's repeated in the verses that we read. To worship in spirit is not a comment about the spirit of humanity, but rather the spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is at work, looking, seeking, searching for worshipers. God is spirit, is what we just read. So our worship must be driven and led by the spirit. In essence, to worship in the spirit is to worship God on God's terms. To worship in the spirit is to worship in step with God. God is the object of worship, the motivation for worship, the direction of worship, the cause of worship, the sustainer of worship, and the recipient of worship because we worship in spirit. If one person claps, we all have to. And what is the hindrance to this kind of spiritual worship? In a word, deception. What would prevent someone from having a life of worship that is driven by the Spirit? Lies, deception, failing to believe the truth. Consequently, a life of Spirit-led worship is also a life of honest and truthful worship. We should worship in Spirit and also in truth. The original Greek language doesn't present us two modes of worship, is that one time we can worship in spirit and on another occasion we can worship in truth, but rather these are two aspects of the same thing. In the same way, I could say that Megan has blue eyes and she has a beautiful singing voice. Now when I say that, you understand I'm not talking about two different people, it's two aspects of my wife. She has a wonderful singing voice and she has blue eyes. We're not talking about two different people just because we pointed out two different aspects. That's what we're getting here from the Greek is that to worship in spirit and in truth. This is describing how to worship. This is not one time we worship in spirit, one time we worship in truth, but rather this is how we should approach worship at all times. We can't ignore that throughout John's gospel, we're told that Jesus is the truth. This is most clearly stated and well-renowned in John 14, when Jesus tells the disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now to say I am the truth is a bold claim, 
And it's a claim that only Jesus can make. But to worship in truth means worship that leads us to Jesus. Because the worship of anything else is rooted in deception. Similarly, a failure to worship at all is also rooted in deception. But worship that is true and honest is consumed with the truth of Jesus and a total devotion to him. A half-hearted worship is false. Worship of ourselves is dishonest. Worship of any other is rooted in a lie. And what would prevent someone worshiping in spirit? Deception. But a sincere reflection of life leads us to worship in truth. A brutally honest consideration of our lives and our own spirituality brings understanding of how much we need a savior. Unraveling the lies that surrounds us clears the way for us to see Jesus. True spiritual worship, the kind the Father is looking for, is driven by the Holy Spirit and immersed in the truth, which leads us to a life-changing devotion to Jesus. In our pursuit of what worship is, why it's important, why we should care, why as a church do we value worship so highly, our starting point today is simply, worship is more than a weekly activity. Worship is more than a weekly activity. There's a passage in Colossians 1. The passage, and we'll read in just a moment, it appears to be a hymn that the first churches may have sung. And Paul is quoting the hymn to help the church in Colossae understand some important truths about Jesus. In Colossians 1, verse 15, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything, and was created, before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Now from a straightforward reading of this rich passage, it's impossible to miss that Paul wants us to know that Jesus is truly amazing. That he's so awesome and majestic that it's impossible to overstate it. And the first point I want to bring to you today is that worship is the right response. Worship is the right response. It's the right response to who Jesus is. Consider what we just read a moment ago, that Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, that he existed before anything, that he's supreme over all creation, that everything was created through him and for him, that he holds all creation together, that he's first in everything, that through him God reconciled everything to himself. And of course, this is one of thousands of passages in the Bible that show us something about the Lord that reveals that he alone is worthy of worship. And when we're reading and hearing about the message of Jesus and the love of the Father and the power of the Holy Spirit, surely it has to provoke a response within us. And the right response is worship. As we've been reminding ourselves today, it doesn't mean that the right response is simply singing together once a week, but rather a lifestyle of devotion a lifestyle of unending gratitude, a constant expression of love and commitment. Worship is the correct response and is possible because God makes the first move. He initiates. Our worship is a response to what he has already done. God is the initiator and it's frequently seen throughout the Bible. 
It was God who came to Abraham and made a covenant. It was God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. It was God who came to Samuel as a child. It was God who stepped into human history by sending his son as a baby. It was Jesus that rallied the disciples together. It was Jesus that knocked Paul off his horse. God makes the first move. And that first move invites a response. I was hesitant to use this verse today because I feel like I use it all the time, but it's completely fitting. My favorite verse in the whole Bible, Romans 5.8, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. He made the first move on the cross. The reality is, if God never acted on your behalf again, he has done infinitely more than we can ever imagine for us. If God never answered another prayer, if God was never again present in our lives, he has done more than enough to deserve our total eternal worship and praise. Our responsibility is to respond, and the right response is worship. Worship that is in spirit and in truth. A second thing I want to say to you today, worship affirms the proper order. Worship affirms the proper order. Verse again from Colossians, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. Now I do spend time, possibly more than I should, listening to what the critics of Christianity and uh, atheists that are trying to convince people of the fallacy of Christianity, and I listen to these people largely because I want to know how to engage in the conversation. I also assume that these voices are having an influence on culture and especially teens and young adults and college students. And I do believe that church leaders should have a response to questions that people have. One of the frequent objections to biblical faith is the whole idea of worship. Specifically that God commands it for himself. The objection points out that this is an ugly quality in human relationships and indeed it is. We all find people who demand our adoration repulsive. So why is this different? And the best way I can make sense of that question and respond to that objection is to think of the family structure, specifically parents and kids. One of the frequent tensions in the home is between kids who start to get a sense of independence and kids who start to get uh, their own view of the world. And they start to assume that they should be on level footing with mom and dad. For the home to run in harmony, parents need to be parents, kids need to be kids. Parents understanding that they're responsible for what happens in the home and protecting everyone and making sure everyone is provided for, teaching values and how to live in the world. And kids need to get on script. The home has a greater sense of peace and joy if the kids understand, me kid, you parent. Kids understanding, I'm subservient to you. But kids trying to rule the house, kids trying to reframe the culture of the home, kids not honoring the values of the family, it leads to contention and strife for everyone. Convincing teenagers that it's better for them to respect their parents is one of life's great missions. And we will be praying for our new youth pastor. <laughs> but this is a picture of our Heavenly Father, and it illustrates why worship is so important. Worship affirms the proper order. You are God, and I am your humble servant. This is certainly not suggesting that kids should worship their parents, but it highlights the importance of the proper order of things. Kids trying to be superior to their parents ends in a hostile home. We all get that. Humanity trying to usurp God's authority ends in disaster, and this is observable through all of human history. Worship, our right response, our life of devotion reminds us. It even recommits us to the proper order of life. Lord, you are God. 
Your word is final, not my word. Your wisdom will protect me, not my wisdom. Your teaching should be the foundation of my life, not my own understanding. Expressing worship affirms the proper order of life. And this all points to the original root of the English word worship. The word worship, it derives from the Old English word worth-ship, W-R-T-H-ship. Over time, the word became abbreviated from worth-ship to worship, but it's helpful for us to remember the root of the word we use. Today, we're considering how worship is more than gathering once a week and singing together. It's describing worth where it's appropriate. Worth-ship, what is worthy of this? To help us consider this, let's check out this psalm. Psalm 89, verse 5. All heaven will praise your great wonders. Lord, myriads of angels will praise you for your faithfulness. For who in all of heaven can compare with the Lord? What mightiest angel is anything like the Lord? The highest angelic powers stand in awe of God. He is far more awesome than all who surround his throne. O Lord God of heaven's armies, where is there anyone as mighty as you, O Lord? You are entirely faithful. You rule the oceans. You subdue their storm-tossed waves. You crush the great sea monster. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours and the earth is yours. Everything in the world is yours. You created it all. He is worthy. He is far greater than me. God and God alone is worthy of our worship. <laughs> worship is the right response. Worship affirms the proper order, and worship recenters our soul. Worship recenters our soul. We easily get swept up in the cares and concerns of the world around us. There's so many things that comprise our lives, so many things that are competing for our attention and our concern. There are so many demands that we have, and it takes a toll on us. It takes a toll on our well-being. I would even say it affects our soul. And a verse that came to mind as I was considering all this is a well-known verse from Matthew 22. Matthew 22, 35, one of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap him with this question, talking to Jesus. Teacher, which is the most important commandment in the law of Moses? Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. A second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. It's easy to say, but life has a way of pulling our hearts, our minds, and our soul away from God. One of the tough realities is that God's redemption plan is at work, but until Jesus returns, the work will be ongoing. There's still injustice and hurt and pain that we all experience. There's loud voices pulling us away from godliness. We all live with brokenness, and we can see the brokenness in others. All of this has an effect on us, almost like a gravitational pull. And this gravitational pull is dragging our soul away from God. The life of the believer is a life where we don't accept the pressure to fit in. One of the things I routinely pray for my children is that they have the confidence to not blend into the world, but to have the boldness to stand out, to resist the pressure. But this pressure is very, very real, and it's a lonely fight. And we're kidding ourselves if we say it doesn't affect our soul. We're all consumed and we all have social media. There are influencers, YouTubers, cable news, Hollywood, politics. All of these things can easily have a negative gravitational pull on our hearts, on our minds, and on our soul. But times of worship, 
recenters. It reestablishes its priorities. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Worship helps undo the toxic work of culture. When we express love for God, it fills our hearts. When we declare his majesty, when we declare his holiness, it revives our soul. When we remind ourselves of his wonder and goodness, it settles our minds. When we worship, we remember the call to worship in truth from John 4. To worship in truth means worship that leads us to Jesus. Worship that's true and honest is consumed with the truth of the Lord our Savior. And it's a total devotion to him. Having our focus and concern fixed on him brings a reviving to our soul. What I would describe as a needed recentering. The mission statement that we have here at the church, if you've been around for a while, you'll know this well, is to lead individuals to become. It's to lead people to become faithful and effective followers of Jesus. Worship is a part of the becoming. Recentering is a part of the becoming. It's part of the spiritual transformation that happens in our lives. Letting go of the lies and deceptions and embracing the goodness and the love of God. These words from John the Baptist, very well known. He must become greater and greater. Talking about Jesus. He needs to become greater and greater. And I must become less and less. So recentering that happens to help pull us back to where our soul needs to be. Fourth thing, worship corrects our perspective. Worship corrects our perspective. Over the Christmas break, I watched a documentary about Abbey Road Studios in London. Uh, one of the musicians they interviewed gave a perspective of London in the 60s that I don't believe I've heard before. He pointed out that in the 40s and 50s, it was a difficult time in the UK. The recovery from World War II was so costly and financially devastating to the country that when things started to ease up into the 60s, people generally didn't want to have a retrospective view of life and everyone became very forward-thinking and future-focused. Thinking of the past in London in the 60s meant remembering food rations. It meant remembering the buildings that were in disrepair after the bombing that London went through. But the future, on the other hand, was endless possibilities. So the point in the interview was that this led to a great deal of optimism and enthusiasm because people weren't focused on the gloom of the past but were dreaming of the future that could happen. Now, I'm not stating that this is factual and accurate. This is just one man's opinion on this documentary. But the reason I mention it is because it caused me to think and reflect and consider the generation that we're a part of. If you're alive today, you are a part of this generation. And I started wondering if our generation, if we were forward-thinking and optimistic, or if we were more so rooted in our past and found guidance and direction from what has happened before us, is our culture and society at large deeply connected to our past, or are we driven and motivated by all the possibilities of what's ahead? What I concluded is that we're neither. As a culture, we seem to be losing any sense of value for the past. I've seen video of college students that have minimal knowledge of recent history. We don't celebrate or honor the things that got us here. We don't recognize the sacrifice of previous generations. We don't appear to learn from the past. We don't look at history and resolve that we will not make the same mistakes again. We dismiss traditions and fail to tell the stories of heroes from the past. But we haven't substituted our dismissal of the past with a strong embrace of the future. I don't hear the loudest voices in the world today, and I don't hear optimism and hope. There isn't a widespread sense among young people that the future is wide open to them. There isn't an unrelenting sense of opportunity. People aren't pursuing audacious things with a determined sense of possibility. And if we're neither focused on the past nor the future, what's left is just being totally consumed with today. 
How do I entertain myself today? How can I hook up with someone today? How can I make some money today? What do I want to buy today? What will make me happy right now? How can I feel good about myself right now? Who am I angry at today? It appears that we have a minimal value from what's gone before us and we're too busy being consumed with today that we've lost any regard for the future. Though the world around us may be tunnel vision towards today, we worship the God of eternity. From the book of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. And later on in Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. If our generation is so consumed with today, worshiping the eternal God brings a needed perspective. It helps us find our place in the past. Our life story has been grafted into God's big story. How God has worked in human history through promises and covenants and ultimately the cross, resurrection, the birth of the church, the sending of the Holy Spirit, all of this helps us find our place in what's gone before us. And the eternal God has a plan and purposes laid out for the future. When we follow him, our steps walk into the future that he has planned. We may not know the details, we may have no, no certainty about what he's gonna be doing. But because I gave up the chance to be the hero of my own story, and I asked God to be the author and the hero of my life, I can approach the future with wide-eyed wonder. I can expect the Lord to move in new and exciting ways. I can anticipate challenges being overcome. And I don't have to live consumed with today and trying to satisfy the cravings of today. Look with a different perspective and you'll see that God is still moving, that he is the beginning and the end. This change in perspective often comes through worship. Worship is the right response. Worship affirms the proper order. Worship recenters our soul. And worship corrects our perspective. And while we might typically describe worship as a musical genre or use the word worship to describe a time of singing, it's certainly more than that. And it's difficult to neatly fit into a box. Even our expression of worship isn't limited or simplified. Worshiping in spirit and in truth, it may be led by the Holy Spirit and focused entirely on the Lord Almighty, but the practice, this is broad. Worship is both together and alone, loud and quiet, quick and prolonged, logical and emotional, ancient and new. Now from that list that I put together, you can literally mix and match. An expression of worship might be alone, loud, and emotional, or it may be quiet, prolonged, and new, or it may be together, quiet, and logical, meaning thought-provoking. And none of this is wrong if it's centered on Jesus and in spirit and in truth. Worship is both. I wanna consider those together. The first thing, together and alone. Some memorable moments of worship for me happened by myself. Other times there are moments where I'll be here on a Sunday morning and have a deeply meaningful time in worship with the whole congregation gathered together. There's a moment that stands out for me. It was a number of years ago. I was in a hospital room with a man who was dying. His daughter was a part of our church, so a friend and I went to see him in the hospital and got to pray with him. The room was full of the presence of God. 
This man wasn't able to communicate, but I have to believe that this moment registered with him. There was only four of us in the room. I've been in church conferences where there's been tens of thousands of people. I've been alone in my car, and I've had incredibly deep, meaningful moments in worship. The answer, I believe, is seek both. Neither is enough. Only seeking worship when we gather together is not enough. Only settling for worship when we're by ourselves is not enough. Seek both times of worship together as a congregation, together as a small group, together with others, and alone by ourselves. The next one, loud and quiet. Now this one may seem obvious, but I thought it worth saying. Passion is not measured by volume. Your expression of worship may be loud at times, and other times may be quiet. And I have no reason from the Bible to conclude that either is better than the other. In our house, I like to be up first. And when I'm up early in the morning, that's when I like to read my Bible and pray and have a time of worship. And I can say this, Megan and the kids are all very grateful I'm quiet about it. But there are other times where I feel like I need to sing and speak with volume. That represents what's happening internally. As a church staff, we gather to worship together on Wednesday mornings as a part of our staff meeting. And there's normally 10 of us or so. Sometimes there's a staff member who's loud, but the next time they may be quiet. Maybe it's indicative of what's going on in their lives, I don't know, but please, we need to shake off this feeling or an expectation that our worship expression is evaluated based on our volume. The next thing, worship is both quick and prolonged. A few moments of worship can recenter our soul or correct our perspective. And there are other times when not being held to a schedule and being able to worship freely in a prolonged way is exactly what we need to do. But I've heard stories that are loaded with guilt because someone has determined that somebody has to express worship in such and such a way for this and that length of time. Surely a rich life of worship that is far more than something that happens on Sunday means that both have a place, quick and prolonged. The next thing, worship is both logical and emotional. Engaging our heads in worship is not wrong. Recognizing that our thoughts and attitudes can easily get off track means that a consequence of worship is correcting those things. To think and reflect on the sovereignty and holiness of God is logical and life-changing. I've heard some that have dismissed the logical idea of worship and only embraced the emotional side, while others will dismiss the emotional and only embrace the logical. I've even heard those that firmly believe that worship should be without emotion entirely. While there may be some who are wary of people being emotionally manipulative, we shouldn't dismiss the emotions of the gospel. The greatest news humanity will ever hear evokes emotion. Hearing and believing that sin is forgiven because of the cross is emotional. The grace of God that is lavishly sown to all who call on His name should be emotional. And I expect that the crucifixion was the most emotional moment imaginable. Embrace that worship can be both logical and emotional. And lastly, worship is both ancient and new. The only true worship we're interested in is the kind God is looking for, which is worshipers in spirit and in truth. The object of our worship will never change, but our expression might. There are ancient expressions that we may repeat, such as traditional hymns or the different creeds from the first few hundred years of the church. And I'm even going to make a solid promise to you now. If you come to Word of Life Church on December 24th in the year 2048, 
25 years from now, we will be singing Silent Night. True story, when we're planning Christmas Eve services, it's not even a conversation if we're singing Silent Night or not. It's just built in. <laughs> but the ancient and the traditional should not be dismissed and easily forgotten. And yet, new songs are being written. Songwriters are expressing songs of devotion and love to a holy God that are new and reflect the new ways that he's moving around us. What matters is that it's the kind of worship that God is looking for worship in spirit and in truth. I want to read that passage from Colossians for you again. Colossians 1.15. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he is first in everything. For God, in all his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ, and through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. My friends, there is no rational way to reduce worship to a few songs we politely sing together once a week. But God is looking and searching and seeking for true worshipers, people who will worship Him in spirit and in truth, people who understand that worship is more than a weekly activity and that worship is the right response. Worship affirms the proper order. Worship recenters our soul and worship corrects our perspective. And worship is both together and alone, loud and quiet, quick and prolonged, logical and emotional, ancient and new. And we're going to go back into a time of worship in a few moments. Before we do, I want to put two questions to you, and it may even be helpful to you to reflect on these questions as we spend time in worshiping with the team leading us. But the first thing I want to put to you is, is your response the right response. As we consider the goodness of God, the majesty of God, the holiness of God, the power of God, that He and He alone is God Almighty, is our response to that correct? Is our response the kind of worship God is looking for? And as we focus on Him, what needs to change about you? As we focus on Him, what needs to change about you? Is there something that's out of order? Is there some area of life or life entirely where God is not in that top spot? Is there a particular area in a moment of honesty we would say that we need to recenter our soul? Is there a perspective that needs to change? And I hope to spend time worshiping, hopefully what has been shared today will be on the fore of your mind. And as we worship, God's gonna do a work in our lives. So I invite you to stand, I'm gonna pray, and the team's gonna lead us as we worship together as a church. Lord, please take something from this message. Lord, something, one of the Bible verses. Lord, something, use it to grab a hold of people's hearts right now. Lord, as we worship, as we lift you up, as we declare your goodness, as we express our love and our devotion to you, as we honor you as only you should be honored. 
Lord, please do something in the life of our church. Lord, do something that is truly going to reset the standard of what it means to worship you. Lord, we love you. We trust you. We believe you're building this church. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.